male or female, it's all about relationships and personalities and communication. And I think I went into it not thinking, oh, look at all these men. These are personalities that I need to learn to work with. So balancing it all, I like to think that I don't live to work, that I live to contribute. And I really think that the contribution you want to make is very individualized. And so for me, I'm choosing to contribute not only as a wife and a mother, but as an employee at McCarthy. Some people may just decide to contribute only to their family, and that's okay. I ground myself in contributing in the ways that I want to contribute, but I also ground myself in really the perspective that I don't think I can have it all, at least not at any one point in time. I am continually sacrificing in one of those contribution areas always. And that's okay, you're making a metal choice maybe this week to give 65, 70 hours to your work and you have to you know, give therefore less to your family. It's just math, right? There's only 24 hours in a day. But maybe the next week you're able to dial back the work and, and, and step up where needed to contribute from the wife or the mom perspective. And so when I reflect back on that overall contribution, that's where I'm grounded in maybe success and a successful integration of it all, if that makes sense. So we are super excited for this week's episode on the AFT Construction Podcast, and we sat down with Christine Newman. Christine is the VP of Finance for McCarthy. McCarthy is a huge national builder. They specialize in commercial construction, industrial, a lot of government work, and they do roughly 5 to $6 billion a year, a, a massive company. And Christine was super gracious to sit down and really dive into the financial side of our industry. You know, especially we even talk about sweep accounts and other investment strategies as a corporation and what she's looking at, how she manages the pre-construction costs and the job costing and the financial analysis for the health of the company. They are an ESOP, which is an employee stock ownership program, which is different than, you know, working for an LLC or, or a big corporation. So there's a lot of information in here that's super valuable. Can't thank Chris enough for coming on. She is absolutely informative in everything that she does. One of the top female leaders in you know, the construction industry, which we're grateful for. So you will absolutely love this podcast with her. So welcome to the AFT Construction Podcast. And today we're joined with Chris Newman. So welcome, Chris. Hi, thank you for having me. And we're super excited to have Chris on today. Chris is the VP of Finance for McCarthy. McCarthy is a $5 billion a year company. And that's right. That's with a B, not an M. Uh, McCarthy, for most of you that may know of them, they're a large commercial contractor. They self-perform. We're going to get into a lot of the details that McCarthy does. But more than anything, we wanted Chris on because Chris brings in a perspective of the finance side, especially for a large corporation, you know, all the little nuances behind finance and accounting and accounts receivables and payables and anything into it. So, you know, to start, Chris, you know, with that introduction, how often are you evaluating the company's performance financially? Uh, great question. Um, you know, I would say continuously, right? Um, but at a minimum, every single month, right, we are scrubbing through, um, you know, our work in progress report, WIP report, which is an industry term. Um, and at any one point in time across McCarthy, we probably have 150 active projects. So so that's a lot. And we're, uh, we're structured in regions. And so um, at each of those regions, we actually have a vice president of finance who kind of um, um, plays that CFO role. And um, in addition, we have a financial reporting group that also helps to accumulate all the data from the regions each month. But specifically, we really hone in on our costs, right? And um, anyone, any of the audience that's listening that follows generally accepted accounting principles in construction, you know, follows a percent complete methodology of calculating 
and recognizing your revenue and profit. And so that's really driven by cost. And it's, you know, every dollar we incur helps generate more revenue and profit. And so we do a lot of analysis month to month on our projects to see how those costs are fluctuating. You know, at the beginning of a job, it's probably ramping up, right? And at the height of a job, it's a you know, it's plateaued and then it's, you know, coming back down. And so the life cycle, cycle of the projects really help dictate um, some of that analysis for us. But and, Yeah, and it's interesting because when you speak about work in progress, and I think this is a term for anyone that hasn't done construction accounting, it's very complicated and it can really mess up your financials. I know early on with my business and our career, that was a challenge for us is figuring out work, our whip, like figuring that out and making sure it's accurate because you could either not pay enough taxes, you'd be paying too much, you don't have the right cash on hand. And, and going back to your point with the work in progress, we make con- we make money as a contract on percentage complete. So the ebbs and flow of construction, you know, we may not bill heavy in the very beginning, but it may be heavier in the middle, you know, and then you have a lot of bills come in towards the end. And if you've heavily billed and that percentage complete is at a high number, you have to make sure that those dollars are there. Right. Um, one little nuance to that is that billings don't really drive percent complete. It's truly what you spend, what your costs that you incur. And so billings are another thing that we, we look for, right? And we are hyper-focused on, um, especially for our trade partners, right? Um, we're always in arrears as a GC, but um, our trade partners are even further in arrears with respect to their cash flow um, and capability. But really the, the cost and the focus on costs really helps us compare Um, where we plan to be, say, at the end of our fiscal year to where we're at and how are we going to fill that gap in between, right? Are we going to incur enough costs on all of our projects and our portfolio to get us to our revenue or our profit goal for the year? Yeah, that makes sense. And so when you mentioned that McCarthy has 150 active projects, speak a little bit about the value of those because, you know, these aren't $200,000 remodels. So you know, what is the, the range, if you will, of each of those projects? Yeah, I mean, we really have a vast um, range of dollar amount with respect to projects, but I'd say our average project is somewhere around 25 to $30 million. Um, we like to say that we build things that people need, not what people want. Um, <laughs> and so we work in, you know, the commercial space, of course, but we build for a lot of healthcare systems, university systems, K through 12 water, wastewater treatment plans. I mean, we all need that, right? Yes, we do. Um, We take for granted the fresh water we have sometimes. Um, In addition, um, utility-scale solar. Um, And so, yeah, um, average, but, you know, up to, you know, our biggest project, um, we were just awarded a project with UC Davis in California that right now is about a a $1.5 billion project. So um, that's probably our largest. So how how do you even scale that? When you're thinking about $1.5 billion, uh, is this going to be a JV or a joint venture with another large commercial contractor, or are you going to take this on yourself? McCarthy has taken this one on ourselves, (laughs) yeah. Because I know it's pretty common on some of these really large scale that There'll, there'll be portions. It's a JV with maybe another large national builder, you know, on the commercial side. So how did that come to fruition that now McCarthy is the sole contractor to do this major scale project for UC Davis? Yeah, well, they're a returning client, so which is great. We've we've built in the UC system before um, and, and with the Davis campus. So, um, you know, it really just comes from our breadth of experience in healthcare. Um, we are, you know, proven um, with respect to quality, um, our focus on safety, and delivering us, you know, a project on time, right, is really, really um, critical to our owners. You mentioned joint ventures. One of the bigger ones we had recently, everyone probably knows about, is Allegiant Stadium. We joint ventured with Mortensen on that. And, you know, that was really um, a really cool partnership because they brought the stadium building experience. We're not stadium builders. 
But we brought the knowledge of the Las Vegas marketplace and the trade partners and the capability in the workforce that's there. And so it was really a, a really great, successful um, joint venture. And of course, the stadium is done Looks on like time and was used. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> it's really got some cool architecture to it and typical Raiders fashion. Yeah. Um, it's all black and white, so in silver. It's amazing. For anyone that's been there, I've, I've been able to see it in person when you drive by and it does look like the Death Star. It's a pretty amazing building. So with that, I mean, the complexity, when you're working on a project such as Allegiant Stadium or UC Davis, you know, I know this is not, you're not so much in the operations side, but from the financial side, pre-construction costs. I mean, you're, you're, you're working on design development, you're working on VE, you're working on pre-construction. I mean, this isn't, hey, here's eight months to do a custom home. This is years of cost. So how do you structure that to cover that cost or deposits with the client to cover that that big egg or nut to crack? Yeah. So oftentimes we have a separate, um, completely separate pre-construction agreement. You know, with respect to Vegas, it was a design build project. So we also had the designer under McCarthy's contractual umbrella as well. Um, it takes a lot of coordination. Um, more and more we're doing design build projects. And so um, you know, negotiating with the owner up front, um, not just, you know, the dollars, but the time of all that complexity that, that you're describing. I mean, in an ideal world, everything's, you know, designed and we have perfect documents and we just go and build. I wish. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but really, you know, for the benefit of our owners, it's, um, it's really great when you can build a team of designers, builders together to really plan, talk through, collaborate on, you know, issues and try to mitigate things um, ahead of time for the quality and, you know, the schedule of the project. So we, we start tracking those costs, especially if we already have a contract. Now, that's not to say in some of our markets, we, you know, we do this, you know, free con, right? We, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll joke with it ourselves, right? We ran over our pre-construction budget. We didn't hit it. Um, but what we try to do then is somehow see the benefit of that come through in the actual construction. You know, oftentimes we overspent because there was a design, something that we needed to look through or we needed to go back to the drawing board on something. And so the dollars that we spent up front hopefully come through in the efficiency of the project itself. Hopefully, which that is the hardest part <laughs> is now the efficiency, the final, you know, the actual construction. So when you're working through that and you never want a free con, as you mentioned, you know, that free construction dollars for the client. But is there ever a time where that exceeds at a great amount where you have to go back to the client or it's justified because of either design issues or government issues or COVID issues? I mean, whatever may come up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we pride ourselves on relationships, right, and partnerships with our owners. And so um, and we shoot it straight. So, you know, obviously we'll come to the table with, hey, you know, ABC happened here, COVID hit, right? We were delayed. You know, can we also get dollars and not just time on a COVID delay, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, um, in just being, you know, good partners and all marching to the same goal, right? I'm the owner, the architect, McCarthy, like we're all trying to deliver a project quality, safely, and on time. And I, and I think everyone can nod their head to that. And so oftentimes we can be successful and just sometimes we're not, right? And we got to know what hill to die on to at times, right? Um, if it's a really great client that we've worked for in the past, we see future opportunity, you know, great partnership, then, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to squabble over, you know, I, I love that analogy of, you know, you pick your battles, you need to know what hill to die on, but it's so true. I mean, you have a, a feel for each client, you have a feel for each project and you, and you know, if buttons need to be pushed or if this one, Hey, for the, for the sake of the relationship, 
We're going to eat some costs here. We're going to make it work because it could be twofold. It could be a client that is going to benefit us in the future and there'll be ongoing work. And so that tends to work itself out. Or maybe it's an investment opportunity or a portfolio opportunity where now it can catapult our company into another dynamic, right? And so there's some investment side. And so I'm sure you're looking at that strategically. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's often for the long term, right? Not just the moment that you're in. Yeah, not just today. So going back to the job costing, you mentioned that. So how often do you get involved when you're doing the autopsy or, you know, looking at the end of the project? We spent this much in pre-construction. You know, we had these overruns in schedule. We had these overruns in management or scheduling. So, you know, how often do you do that job costing to really understand this healthcare center cost us X, so next time we need to charge Y? Yeah, we actually, um, I would answer that saying that we do that continuously throughout the life of the project too, right? So at the onset of spending dollars, we're coming to the table at a minimum quarterly to talk about where we're at and where we're headed, um, identify, you know, risks and opportunities, um, and look for ways to get in front of that. But we absolutely fast forward, you know, to the end of a job, um, do postmortems, right? Um, I think one of the things that makes us successful is this uh, mindset of continuous improvement and learning from, you know, past projects, past situations. They're never identical, right? But there's always lessons to pull through um, in, you know, various scopes of work, in, you know, in the scheduling department, in the VDC department, um, you know, in, with the pre-construction team, right? We should have bought that out differently. We should have planned for, you know, more costs and safety, you know, whatever it is. But there's always a post-mortem that's done as well. Which is super important, I think, for the health of any company. They should be doing that post-mortem evaluation of each project and the t- and, and the team too, right? Evaluating the personnel, how they performed, you know, the hiccups you had. You know, going back to, you mentioned the comment buyout and purchasing, which now is incredibly complicated, you know, on some of the projects you're doing. But I would imagine that most of the projects that you do are cost plus, right? That you're negotiating these as a cost plus in addition to, you know, a time frame, you know, here's our schedule commitment, you know, so for the buyout side, when, when you're negotiating these dollars with a subcontractor trade partner, is that to help just fit the overall budget? Is there opportunity for joint savings? I know some, I've had clients where I had a very savvy uh, commercial builder that hired us to build his custom home. And he created some incentive. He said, look, Brad, we are under contract. You know, it's open book with him. But he said, if you have any cost savings, we'll split those 50-50, right? Which sometimes some owners will do to see how we sharpen the pencil and get aggressive, especially on these large scales. So how often does that come into play on your projects? Yeah, I would say, um, so you're right. A lot of our projects are negotiated, right? Um, sometimes they're guaranteed maximum price, right, with some sort of a percentage fee. Um, and... Oftentimes, you know, a few things like owners may um, have their own contingency and they may say you can spend it for these items per the contract. But to the extent that you have savings, we'll split that with you 50-50. We do trickle that down to our trade partners. When we work with our trade partners, you know, especially like with a guaranteed maximum price contract, we're developing a budget that we're presenting to the owner, right? GMP1, GMP2, it may very well even be in phases. And so we are working with our contractor to think overall about the project. But if we need to walk in and present to an owner that the numbers are changing for X, Y, or Z reasons, right? Price escalations, Lumber, et cetera. Steel, exactly. Um, you know, we go to the table and we do that and we, you know, we fight the fight for those trade partners. Um, oftentimes the shared savings bucket um, is something that's in our contract with the owner. And so we're not, you know, opposed to 
also having those types of situations with our trade partners, but oftentimes our trade partners are just want to know what they need to be under and, and know what they're going to get paid, and then they reap the savings of that, right, mm-hmm. of course, after doing really great work. So, um, but yeah, we get shared savings. Um, sometimes we get milestone, you know, bonuses, incentives, incentives mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I would say that those are probably the most common, um, but we're very conservative in that we'll never count that, you know, as part of our income until we cross that finish line. Yeah, so. until you do that autopsy and job costing at the end, that's tough. You know, so with, with these large scale projects, I, I feel they're very complex. You know, I've worked on, we're fortunate to do some large scale projects right now from a residential side. And, you know, with cost fluctuations and material, and there's so many variables. So are you typically saying, here's an owner contingency line, right, for changes that the client will make or FF&E or, you know, any of these things that the owner may dictate, right? And then do you also have a builder contingency line that's, hey, we need to take 3% of the total cost. We're not going to spend it without your approval, but we need this here for X, Y, and Z. Absolutely. We typically like to have both. Um, And we like the contract to spell out, you know, what that process is, how it can be spent, what it can be spent for, what the approval process is to spending that um, and do you need permission typically, or do you try to spit on the contract that, Hey, we're, we may have overruns in, um, you know, it, when we're setting up the streets and barricades, you know, that, that could be a large cost. You know, if we have to have police out there now, you know, monitoring, paying hourly, that may go over because our utilities taking a little longer. And so that could be overruns, you know, where you have those generally as allowances. You know, we come to the table with our owner, whether we need to disclose it or not. I think we're fairly transparent with this is how we spent the contingency and this is what remains. More times than not, if we're not upfront and transparent about how we're spending it and what remains, we get to the end of the job and we don't ever want to drop a surprise, right? Yeah. Oh, we blew through the contingency. What do you mean? I didn't hear you spent a dollar of it, you know? So yeah. it's it's better whether the contract spells it out very clearly just to give that update in our in our owner meetings. Um, and oftentimes we have those every single week, right, where we're sitting down and we're showing a log or we're talking through issues, right? Hey, this came up. We might need to spend contingency here. This might be a situation, you know, we're going to try to work through it. But so always err on the side of, I think, communicating early and often. Um, and with our trade partners too, right? That's what we ask of them. Yeah. Communicate with us early and often. There's a change order. You better let me know. Exactly. Don't, we don't want to get to close out with you. And, you know, you got a list of things. We got a list of things. And then it turns into this, you know way less lack of partnership yeah. <laughs> and camaraderie than it should, you know, and, and oftentimes the job's successful, right? And yeah. then, so we try to, you know, avoid um, that and really partner in that way and, and ask for the same transparency that we give our owners. And I can relate to that. We just had a project close out and one of our trade partners came in with these change orders. And, we, you know, the frustrating part is that if they're bringing in at the end of the project, well, now what do we do? Because we've already closed it out. You know, some of them were valid. There were changes by the client that they requested. But had we have known that or they were going to charge, we could address that and the client can make that conscious decision if they want to do it or not. Now it's like, okay, now we're staring at each other across the table. How do you get reimbursed for this? You can't. Right. And you only have so many dollars in your bucket, right? Yeah. And you don't even, you've closed the door with yeah. your owner because you've delivered this amazing project. Yeah. Yeah. So to, speaking about that, going yeah. back to the financial side, you know, are there certain measurements or metrics that you are that you feel are most important to monitor when you're looking at the overall balance sheet and income, you know, financial statements for the company? Yeah. So um, we talked a little bit about billings. And um, one of the things we focus on our balance sheet is the amount of unbilled that we have at any one point in time, right? We're not a lender, right? We don't want to float, you know, the projects for our owners. And um, and to the extent that our project teams aren't doing their part and billing the costs that we've incurred, right, plus the appropriate level of margin, um, that, you know, that'll come ringing through on a balance sheet. 
and can really get us into trouble, right? To me, those are red flags of like, are we out there spending money money on unapproved change orders, right? Um, are we not, you know, are we just, sometimes our teams, we put a lot of financial focus on our teams. We think of every one of our projects as a small business, right? It is. Um, and we expect them to have a high level of financial acumen to run the business, not just build. So we ask a lot of our people. They're so, amazing. So your superintendents and project managers, project engineers, you're requiring them to have a very good grasp of the financials and job costs of the project. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they come through in those quarterly projection meetings that I talked about where mm-hmm. we go through the risks and opportunities and where we're headed and where we're at and um, and so month to month is their billing, right? Um, we want to make sure for certain that they're billing every cost that we've incurred, right? To the mm-hmm. extent that it, they can. Um, and, you know, those that comes through on the balance sheet as a very large number. If in fact, you know, across 150 projects, we're behind in our billings. Um, cash flow is so important, right? Um, I know for many, you know, in the audience, um, maintaining liquidity and, you know, month over month, and that that focus on cash is so, so, so important. So if you're on build, it's creeping up. you got to go back to the drawing board and figure out, you know, what's driving that and how you can rectify that. Um, and hopefully you haven't gotten over your skis, right, and that, you know, it's just a maybe a lack of paperwork versus a conversation with an owner who may not be willing to pay you now. Yeah, so, and so I was going to ask that because what's really important, you made this comment early in the conversation here, is you said you have to feed the meter. I mean, that's the reality. We're not a bank. We're You know, we understand that there is – you know, as we complete, you know, 30-day cycle, we're going to bill what's complete. You know, at least in Arizona, there's prompt payment laws where now the client has seven days or 14 days to reject that payment. If it's not rejected, it's considered approved, then they have seven days to fund, and then we have to fund the subs. So some of these subs, if they're working to the begin the month, they may not be paid till the end of the next month. So this is long That's durations. Right. Now, as it extends farther than that, then it can create some big burdens cash flow-wise for us or our subs or trade partners. So how do you manage or deal with a client that's slow pay and resisting cutting those AIA payments to you that are due on, you know, net, yeah. net 21, at least for us. Well, I'm going to start at the very beginning. So we um, we are very um, pointed with validating that a source of funds exists. So Which you know, is really smart. So you're going to audit and say, look, okay, you're doing a billion-dollar project. Davis, show me the funds. Where's the escrow account? What's, you know, what's right. the financials behind that's it? That's right. And so it's not a guarantee, but at least we're validating that there's a source of funding, right? Um, and, you know, and we do that on every single client, um, whether they're a public client, right, or whether they're a private client. And every situation's a little bit different, but we go through, we call it proof of funding. We validate that the funds exist and are there, right? So then in addition to that, you know, within our contract, you know, what are those stop work terms for lack of payment? Mm-hmm. And because that's just adding days too, right? So to your point, if you're ready in arrears and our trade partner is even more in arrears and now we're not being paid and we go to our contract and it says, you know, the stop work clause is like, give them 15 days notice, give them a period to cure. You know, you're another 30 days in, right? Before yeah. you even rectify the situation or can actually stop working, um, you know, which which is a last resort, right? Yeah. That's really putting your foot down and dropping the ball. It's on throwing your, that grenade once you it, do it that. It really yeah. is. Um, so we try to work up front a lot, right? Now... You know, fast forward to a lack of payment, we leverage our relationships, obviously, at the right levels within the owner um, to have conversations um, and oftentimes, sometimes have to drop that grenade with respect to or at least threaten maybe that grenade um, of we're going to just stop work. You know, there's been um, very few situations where we've really ever kind of been stiffed, you know. Um, there's definitely been times where we've floated a project along um, or helped our trade partners in that regard, too, because, you know, they're, again, 
even further behind than we are oftentimes. So how, how do you work out the retention side? Because where it gets a little tricky, and, and just to speak the insurance side, so I, I would imagine you're doing projects that are OSIP, right? They're like group insurance, and so those get complicated, which we can talk about in a little bit. I mean, we don't have to get too much into that, but that can complicate it. And then you have the retention side where predominantly, I'm sure most of your projects are retention and they're going to hold back 10%. So are these contracts holding back 10% on the concrete guy till the very end of the project? Or are there phases of completion where they can say, yeah, we've hit this phase, concrete retention can be released. That way the, that subcontractor isn't waiting two years to get his final 10%. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, most of our contracts are written so that at 50% complete, retention reduces to 5%. So at that so point 50% in time, fifty percent of the projects complete. Yep. Then it goes from ten to five percent. Yep. Which really means you keep all the retention you have, owner, and we're not going to give you another dollar retention because you have it all already, right? Mm -hmm. You have fifty percent. Yep. Um. And but with respect to a trade partner who you know works on the very front end of a project, um, we will go to bat and bill for that entire scope and that retention to the extent that it's complete and get that get that trade partner closed out and done to the extent that um, we possibly can. Now, do you ever have owners or owner's reps? Because I'm sure sometimes <laughs> you're working with owner rep that pushes back and says, well, this is retention. This needs to be held. And then it's that tug and pull. Well, this contractor's 90 days past completion. All the concrete's there. We haven't had any issues. Yeah. You know, can they be funded? We can negotiate, you know, some lower dollar amount than their 10% that needs to remain for, you know, some sort of, you know, issue punch, on a punch. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yep. Which is always tough. And, and you know, when I, I know that's the complicated part is, ten, you know, and especially with your scale project, you're not always working directly with the owner. There may be a third-party management company or consultant that now is adding into the complication. I mean, in some cases, they're great. Owners reps do a phenomenal job. Some cases, they really complicate the system. I've had both in my career. And so the good ones are awesome because they help facilitate and really expedite things. They understand what you're dealing they're with. They're part Chris. of the team, they're right? They're part of the team and yeah. they want to get this job done. And they know that a lot of times, right, wrong, or indifferent, the owners are the reason that we're delayed. They're holding things up. They're not making decisions. And it becomes a contentious situation where we're always demanding them to get these answers where the, the middleman now can do that. And But sometimes they, they, they complicate it. They want to go through the bills. They want to scrutinize it. And so now these draws can get pushed out. Yeah. And so um, I think something we've learned when you're in that situation where you have maybe more challenging um, owner's rep um, to not just have your relationship stop with that owner's rep, but build a relationship with that owner to the extent you can as well. I mean, there's a way to do that, right? Um, my husband would say it's the third door, right? Like, <laughs> so you, you have that relationship with the owner's rep. That's why they're there. The owner obviously doesn't want to be involved day to day, but you can still build that rapport and that relationship because when you're stopped and blocked, you got to go somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and it shouldn't all just kind of die right there with that owner's rep. So those relationships at all levels, um, we like to call all relationships with our owners sort of this zipper plan approach where we match up relationships at different levels, right? At the really operational smart. level, um, at the executive level, and all throughout, at the financial level for me, right? I like to build relationships with the financial person over at the owner in case I have a situation, in case they have a situation they need to call. Um, and, and same with our trade partners. So we have this zipper plan approach to building relationships. You know, it's interesting. I've never heard the term zipper plan, which makes complete sense that as you know, you allocate someone at the same level and that just is another way to solidify that communication between the parties and going back to the field staff. So uh, you mentioned that the field staff needs to have a good understanding of the financials and something that we've striven to, or strive to do. And again, we're not at your scale, as you know, but you know, I've seen where there's advantages if, if my superintendents understand the budget, 
if they know this, the, if they have the actual contracts that we're contracting the framer and the steel company and the window company, they know the scope. They, that way, if they're trying to get change orders or bill for something that wasn't on plans, they have the documentation, they know the budget amounts, you know, this helps them manage their job. So how extensive do they get from the financial pre-con side on the field to manage that throughout building? It's a really good question. So um, we develop what we call a margin plan for every single one of our jobs. And we share that plan um, sort of once it's been vetted. And it's a collaborative approach in how that plan even comes together. One thing we don't want to do is just fall emotionally in love with a project because it looks like the really next cool thing to build. Yeah. We want it to make financial sense, right? We are a for-profit employee-owned company. Yes. And so... Um, that margin plan development really is a collaboration of pre-construction, operations, you know, financial lens, um, business development, because they may be the folks that have brought the opportunity in the door and have the relationship. And so we all make sure we're marching to the same plan. And that plan is alive throughout the life cycle of the job. But at the very forefront, it's shared with that operational team. We bring the ops team in as early as we can. You know, it's not just this handoff from pre-construction. Here, here's your here's your stuff, guys. Go. Go build, right? It's definitely an integrated approach to the success of the job. And the financial side of that, the margin plan side of that, is just one of those pieces that walks along as well. So we expect our superintendents to understand. If we expect to make some margin on productivity and our self-perform, that's that's you, right? That's that's them rolling their sleeves up and trying to help us drive to that and keep the pulse on that and really understand that that's a critical part of the overall uh, plan of the job. This episode is brought to you by Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove. For over 75 years, Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove has specialized in refrigeration, cooking, and dishwashing that can be found in some of the world's most luxurious homes. At AFT Construction, we look forward to crafting our client's dream kitchen when building the home of their dreams. To get this process started, we locate the nearest showroom and set up an appointment. It's that easy. Since Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove specializes in three major categories, we can make all of our kitchen selections in one stop. The first one is that Sub-Zero handles refrigeration. They are the preservation specialist. Key features included fresh or longer dual refrigeration, advanced air purification, precise temperature control, customized modular design. This ensures tastier, healthier food and eliminates waste so that the food stays fresher longer. Second is that Wolf is the cooking specialist. Key features include precise heat control, predictable, consistent temperature, intuitive controls, and easy-to-use technology. Everything is designed with you in mind. These features enhance flavors of food, ensure consistency, and eliminates guesswork. Delicious results every time. And last but not least is Cove, the cleaning specialist. Key features include precise water flow, superior drying conditions, fully adjustable interior for every need, and so quiet it never interrupts. Not only are all products functional and reliable, they look great, truly built to last. To schedule an appointment at your nearest Sub-Zero Wolf & Cove showroom, visit subzero-wolf.com backslash showroom or click the link in our show notes below. So let me complicate this a little bit for you without getting too involved in the day-to-day -day financials of McCarthy, but I would anticipate or assume that there's some sort of incentive, and correct me if I'm wrong, or bonus structure, right? Because you have engineers and your superintendents and your schedulers and coordinators, right? And then you have your business development that are bringing in the job, the commission side. You have pre-con that's doing the work to estimate, which are incredibly complicated builds. So how do you monitor, and you're an employee-owned company, which we'll get into later, but you know, how do you monitor the incentives or valuations, or is it just an end of year based 
on productivity or is it a stock? I mean, it's so complicated and you don't have to get specific, but how do you manage all those different entities that are involved in such a large project? No, yeah, good question. So, um, and it kind of relates to the fact that we're employee owned, but basically um, we establish, you know, a business plan nationally, um, business plan goals nationally for our organization. So we do that process in the fall. Um, each of our five regions goes through an excruciatingly detailed process of putting their plan together, right? Um, each region may have several different business units, right? Which, you know, ultimately gets to a project, right? Um, so the plan includes, you know, the goals for the projects that we have in backlog, the goals for the projects that haven't even started yet, maybe we've been awarded. And then, of course, you know, a plan for projects that we expect to be awarded and, and get going within that fiscal year. So we, we come up with these goals, and on a national level, those are consolidated. And to the extent that we meet those goals, there's a bonus pool. And every single one of our employees, to the extent that we perform and meet that benchmark, um, is considered for a bonus. Mm. Absolutely. And, and of um, course, it's proportionate to salary and performance and skill and everything else. Absolutely. Your contribution mm. for the year. So mm. we say that the bonus, you know, it's not a guarantee. It's just that. It's mm -hmm. a bonus, right? And, and it depends on all of us performing. And um, the pools are actually um, allocated based on the region's performance, too. So, um, so if one region does exceptionally well compared to the overall percentage, you know, of the total company result, they may get a bigger bonus pool, right? But that just makes sense. They contributed more to the overall. Um, and so it trickles down sort of in that same way you're describing about your individual contribution in that fiscal year. I love how you, how you shared that because it does vary. I mean, at a large company such as yours where you have five regions, there could be a region that's performing better for whatever reason. Maybe they're fortunate to have better clients. Maybe they have better staff and better executives that are running this thing more efficiently. But at the end of the day, you know, you're going to evaluate on the performance of that individual. And if there's a bonus or incentive, then each of the people understand that mentality, which I love that you share that, that th this is a team approach. If everyone's on the same page and we understand if I do my job, if Chris does hers, if everyone does theirs well, that's more incentive for all of us to put that together, right? Because if I'm making a mistake, that's going to affect not just me, but everyone else in the company. That's right. Yep. And, and again, bonus is um, a fiscal year performance. So it's sort of that, you know, period of time. How did we do? And how are we rewarding ourselves for that? So for backlog, how, you know, the backlog is really interesting. As you're managing jobs and staffing, you know, there has to be some sort of plan behind the scenes where you're saying, okay, here's, here's the projects that we have for 2021. These are under construction, right? We're working on our whip, as we discussed. We, we know where these are at. Now our backlog, we've we've been working pre-construction. These are going to be starting. And then our, you know, our backlog and our other ones that, hey, there's this job we're chasing. There's a 20% chance we're going to get it. This one's going to be 80%. And I'm sure you're putting percentages. So then that way you can figure out manpower and woman power. I mean, however you want to say <laughs> exactly. that, right? The, yep. the, the staff that has to run these jobs to allocate that you can actually perform what you're going to be awarded and win. It's definitely an art, not a science. Yeah. Uh, how do you do that? Because I mean, for me, it's incredibly complicated and, you know, the same exact scale. way you do it. Yeah. Honestly, it's, it's the, you know, the pieces that, you know, add up to the parts that add up to the bigger picture. And so, you know, that's part of, you know, when is this job going to finish? Who, who is that staff? And we try to say we, you know, highest, best use of our, of our partners, right? We call each other partners at McCarthy. Um, you know, who's the best person, the best team, the best project manager, the best superintendent to put on this 
project that may be uberly complex, right? Or we look for opportunities to give people, you know, a different experience too. Um, we often talk. Um, so I don't want to jump around. No, I'll please. answer your try to answer. Your question, but we do it exactly probably the same way, just on a different scale. I think you nailed it. And manpower, man, woman meetings yeah. are happening all man person yeah. are happening all the time with our operations leaders. Um, they're constantly vying for personnel too, right? I mean, that happens a little bit. I need that resource. This mm -hmm. is the right person to run this scope of work. I need that person. They're proven. And then someone might be like, but I really need them over here, right? And um, at the end of the day, we put people in the best place we possibly can on the best teams too. You have to look at the whole team. Um, yeah, there's a lot to be said for that because, you know, on these projects, this isn't, hey, one superhero. You, you may have a staff five, six, seven in a job site trailer and they're out there and they're having to coordinate and work and, and phase this project together. Absolutely. And, you know, we try to create high performing teams, right? And sometimes we weren't successful at the first go around of those that we thought would, you know, get out there and crush it. Um, there might be a personality dynamic. There might be something happening. And sometimes we have to make that change. The other thing that we've really gotten better at, and I, I know this doesn't apply um, to everyone, um, more for us because just being a national organization, we have gotten better and better at leveraging our resources across the country. So if there is somebody sitting with lab experience, right, in St. Louis, and they can come out to Arizona and work for ASU on this big gnarly lab job that we have, we're going to try to deploy that resource to the extent that they're willing and able um, because we want to provide and deliver the best product we can, right, with the right expertise. Um, too many times we've maybe tried to get by with the resource that we had that never had the lab experience or just zip that person in for a month or two with the experience and zip them back out and really have learned that they need to be there through the whole entire project um, for that outcome to it costs us more money, right? It if does. we have to change people per around, DM and relocation, absolutely. All those so if we get it right the first time, we're, we're and more if, successful. And if they're open to it, the, the advantage is you bring someone that has high experience and now can train the team that's going to be on that project. As long as they're willing to re relocate, and you know, but financially, you have to be conscious of what that cost is going to be as you move them from St. Louis to Arizona. That's right. Yeah. So going back to you know the company dynamic, which is really interesting because I want to talk about sweep accounts, and so. For those of you listening that may not be familiar, that's a term where we have cash flow, right? So as we're billing jobs, and you may have a different term, which I'm sure you'll speak of, Chris. But so as instead of having our money just sit in a checking account, you know, and make zero money, how can we take this pool of funds as we're, you know, we have money coming in and money going out? It's this constant uh, revolving door. How can we utilize that and put in a sweep account where overnight, you know, it's being put into with a bank and most of your banks, if you said, I want to do a sweep account, they can do that and you can earn interest. So now you're earning interest off the money in your checking account instead of just sitting there. Now you, you know, for a company such as yours, where you have a large pool because you're self-performing, you have your GC, you have these other entities that we'll get into, you know, how are you monitoring that? Because there's additional opportunities for you to have uh, to, to make some interest, make some extra money as a company. Yeah, so absolutely. I would say that first, you know, have a well-established banking relationship. I think that's really um, fruitful. And I think that that banking relationship can help bring you these sorts of opportunities. Um, but managing your cash, I mean, we used to do um, – we're not as hypersensitive about it right now, but we used to do like, you know, this four-week look ahead, six-week look ahead, right, where you're constantly looking at the ins and outflows, right? There's different 
times of the month where we spike in our outflows and then certain times of the month where we spike in our inflows. And that's really when you can take advantage of these sweep accounts. And then you get to a point where you know your average daily balance needs to be to clear certain things. Certain hits, yeah. Or you insert more at that certain times of the month where you peak or you plateau. So, um, But yeah, the sweep account allows you to pool all of your aggregate cash and literally overnight it's swept into an investment and then comes back in as needed. And it, it can actually float out there a couple of days if you don't need that cash to come back in right away. Um, but again, I think that a sound banking relationship is the best place to go to explore that. Um, but come, you know, w armed with your cash flow and your cash analysis, right? Because the bank doesn't necessarily know. I mean, they can tell you the activity in your account, but you know your business best, right? And being able to monitor that to get the most benefit you can from gaining a little interest. Interest rates aren't great right now, but, you know, every every penny helps. So It still helps. And Absolutely. On a, on a large scale, that still can, over the year, over 12 months, you know, sweep accounts can bring you know, decent revenue to the company. Absolutely. And, you know, from a trade partner perspective, you might have your vendor's cash, right, that you need to turn around and pay, but maybe you don't need to pay it for 30 days. So sweep it away, get the most interest you can on that funds, and then obviously, you know, pay them when their invoices and, do. And here's the value. I mean, you're a great partner for your trade partners, right? McCarthy is a great company. There's a lot of trade partners that want to align themselves with your firm. And so if McCarthy isn't in business, they're not in business. And so the reality is you have to be strong and fiscally aware and and, and create this interest and, and be financially sound. So then that way, you know, you're employing thousands of people and suppliers. And so there is value for you. It's not like you're doing anything dishonest. This is just a way to seize the, the opportunities in front of you. Absolutely. I think it's just, um, you know, you can relate it to your own personal finances, right? Like I try to keep as little as I can in my checking account and put everything else in a money market. Or, and then, you know, to the extent you don't need that cash, it's even further out. You invest it even a little bit more aggressively, right? So that really is the same for your business as well. Yeah, which is really smart. So how do you manage the billing side? So it's very complicated, you know, the whip and the job costing for all these projects. Now, McCarthy is unique because you have your own, you self-perform. So there's elements of your company where you're self-performing. So now you have your own laborers and installers and that whole complicated process. You also have other companies that run independently but are still working on the same pool. So how do you manage that complicated company management, you know, throughout each region? From a cash perspective? Yeah, from a cash perspective. Yeah. So again, back to our projects, I mean, they're really the crux of billing our owners every single month, right? But to the extent that we self-perform, I mean, I think you said it, we have to pay our people, yeah. right, before we're even paid. And so cash becomes even that more critical. Um, and so um, we are, you know, we're, we just have the benefit of, you know, a really longevity of success in projects and have been able to you know, sort of hoard away cash um, to the extent that we can continue to fund um, our self-perform initiatives. Um, but yeah, oftentimes um, that just sort of is a double kind of double-edged sword for, for a company that maybe wanted to start out in that, right? Um, I would say focus on your cash first and then, you know, start to deploy that, that sort of effort. Um, but we do take advantage of, you know, I think I was giving you the example earlier, Brad, of um, a acquisition we made a few years ago, and they're actually a, an earthwork um, trade partner of ours that we own. And they're always a little bit upside down in their cash situation, but they have the benefit of being a part of us. Um, and so we help that along by pooling all the cash together. And so from their perspective, if they were standalone, they'd probably be suffocating a little bit. 
um, but can look to us as, you know, with our arm around them to help bring them along and make them successful. Which is important. And so as a trade partner, you know, they can align themselves with McCarthy. And now you have this bigger pool, as you mentioned, so the ebbs and flows of construction as they're waiting on payment from their uh, from their clients or contractors. That helps carry them. And are, are there a lot of companies that McCarthy has outside with separate names? Um, so, so, you know, that, that are operating or is it mostly, you know, those that you're self-performing under the McCarthy label? Yeah. So we just have a couple, um, two actually, that are both Earthwork um, trade partner um, scopes. And we've acquired them in the last, you know, five to seven years. And they're um, working for you and other GCs as well. That's right. Yep. One's out of St. Louis um, and one's out of San Diego. And um, so we haven't grown. Um, we've grown more organically than we have um, through acquisition Um in our 100 and, what oh gosh, 56 years now or so. Um, so, you know, we, we brought them on board. We saw a benefit in them coming, um, you know, into our space and helping us. Um, there was a lot of relationships there that also helped to solidify that transaction. But with respect to building our own self-performed workforce, you know, there's a lot of markets we work in that aren't union. And we really um, – figured out that in order for us to almost control our own destiny in some cases, um, if we control that labor force as well, um, we can overall make that project just more successful, um, control the schedule tighter, um, control the safety. Mm-hmm. Um, our safety culture is something that we um, are very proud of, and we we do uh, matriculate that down to our trade partners, but to the extent that they're our, our own workforce, it's even easier, right, to have that safety culture. Um, you know, our chairman likes to say that every single day, you know, our projects are trying to kill someone. And, mm-hmm. and he's right. Um, and, you know, we what we do is really, really humbling, right? We build America and it's it's really, really risky. And not just financially, it's, you know, risky from a safety standpoint. And, and I don't think people realize the extent of what you're saying right now. I've, I've been fortunate to walk and, and work on some of these large commercial projects, definitely not now under AFT, but in previous years as a contractor and doing some JV stuff with your husband and you know, and, and a lot of my peers that I went to school with work for McCarthy's that I'm friends with. And it's interesting, you know, people don't realize when you're working on a large commercial development, and you look underground, and these are 30 feet deep trenches, you know, and you're tying into sewer lines. I mean, cave-in and trenching. And, you know, these are things that in the blink of an eye, something can happen and someone can lose their life, or especially as you go vertical, you know, and these large steel structures. And People don't realize confined spaces. I mean, we could go on and on. So I do commend McCarthy because they are very strict. And I know having been on these projects, what they require me from safety glasses and hard hats and vests, you know, I mean, whatever it may be uh, to just be safe and be cognizant of what's around me, because if someone doesn't go home to their family, that that's a big problem, something you really have to watch out for. Yeah. Um, I mean, to the extent that, you know, it, it is very common for us to start just a meeting in the office with a safety moment. Someone is explaining something, whether it's just, you know, hey, when you put your Christmas lights up this weekend, you know, be careful. Or it was an experience that happened on a job site. We are we just kind of center ourselves in in, in that first and foremost um, to make it really at the forefront of what we are always thinking about. So how complicated does it get when you're working in markets like now? You're going to be UC Davis. You know, California is heavily union, you know, Chicago, parts northeast. You know, how complicated is it when you're working in some of these markets that are very heavy union? And you're working with some unions, some non-union. Does it ever create any issues or challenges for the company? Um, well, we don't work in Chicago or um, the, the upper northeast in New York markets um, at all. 
Um, we have done some work up at like Dartmouth and whatnot. But, um, you know, we are, you know, Arizona, California, Vegas, like there's unions all mm-hmm. over there. Um, so, you know, um, we try to manage those relationships with the unions. Um, in all honesty, we have people that, you know, that's one of their main objectives is to make sure that we have a relationship with the union, that they know the resources that we need, that we ha- there's the expectation of who they're bringing to us. Um, because they just filtrate in, right, as part of that overall workforce um, on a specific project. And then we ask them to adapt to, you know, certain of our protocols. Um, and we have a very low tolerance um, for not following those protocols. So it really goes back to those relationships and how we can leverage those with the unions and the skilled workforce that they're bringing to us. When we have to combine union and non-union, the expectations are the same. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it really doesn't create any sort of, you know, animosity. Um, we really focus hard on whether you're a trade partner um, and you're a worker, a skilled worker there, or whether you're our own self-perform, um, that everyone has the same expectations and we're all marching towards that same end goal. I love that. And it is complicated. You know, I've, I grew up working in California and I'd worked on prevailing wage jobs and, you know, union jobs. And, you know, my, my father was in the union, electrical union for all his life. And so I'm very familiar with, uh, the, the positive experiences that come from it. And sometimes there's some tension between union and non-union, which you understand, and we don't have to dive down that, uh, tunnel to speak about that. But going back to the company dynamic of McCarthy, what I love is that it's an ESOP, right? So it's, so, so talk to us about what that is and the purpose behind that. Yeah, so... And um, what that acronym is, because I'm sure those listening may not know. Okay, it's an employee um, stock ownership plan. And um, ESOPs are actually qualified retirement savings plans. So we think of our ESOP as really an additional retirement mechanism, like many of you probably might have 401k plans at your organizations. And so our ESOP is another um, form of retirement savings. And what it means is that all of us, up and down the chain at McCarthy are owners in our company and that we all have shares um, of the organization. And once a year, we're we're not publicly traded, right? Public Mm -hmm. companies get a share price every single minute, right, as as their stock is being actively traded. Um, We get a stock price as well. We get valued once a year. So one time a year, and and in fact, in just a couple weeks, we're going to announce our new share price to our employee owners. And so... Um, McCarthy actually contributes um, on our behalf as employees X percent of our salary every single year to buy shares. So after you're at McCarthy for a year, um, X percent of your salary is um, used to purchase shares on your behalf that are in your own ESOP account. And every single year is our stock price continues to increase, you reap the benefit of where you bought in and where the current share price is. We vest over five years. So if you were to leave us before was, five years, you would ask when you have 20% to over in. five years. Yep. So at the end of five years, you are a 100% ESOP owner. So everything in your ESOP account is yours. And, um, you know, so if someone were to leave at six years, they would still be entitled to that because they're that's fully vested. Right. And we, what we do is we pay those that leave, retire or leave, you know, at any one point in time, we pay them out so long as they're 100% vested, 100% of their ESOP account. So what that means to you is you could go spend it and then reap a bunch of tax, you know, liability yeah. on, on using it early, or you just turn it into, you know, you roll it over into some other retirement vehicle like an IRA. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're very, um, 
we're very mindful. And the fact that we're an ESOP really permeates up and down our organization because we all feel like we own the place because we literally do own the place. Um, and so that attitude and that mentality of spending a dollar and thinking I'm spending my own dollar um, really is powerful. Uh, and so it really helps align us to that same common goal. Unlike a private company, right, that may have one or two individual owners or investors or companies, right, you feel like you're working really hard for maybe their pocketbook and not mm -hmm. your own. We are all really working hard to give ourselves sustainable retirements. That's it, period. We don't even have to hopefully rely on the government, you know, Social Security. We're going to have our own coupled with our 401k. Now, there's a downside. And the downside is that a lot of us have a lot of investment in one really risky yeah. construction company. Yeah, and we know how risky construction can be. That's right. So um, it's, you know, there's a big amount of upside, but there's an awful lot of risk associated with that. So we encourage our employees, you know, to diversify their own personal finances, right? You know, you go to a financial planner, they're going to say, well, you got half of your retirement in this really risky construction thing. Maybe the other half of the funds you have should be in something completely diversified or a lot more safe, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is really smart. And so going back to that with the investment side for the employees, I mean, I would see that as an ESOP, what ends up happening is, is it probably eliminates a lot of the turnover because people want to be vested. So they want to be there for five years. And then as they go forward, there's incentives, you know, every year as that increases and they see the value, you know, I'd imagine that does help to some extent with turnover and the collaboration with, with your entire team. Absolutely. We, um, we have a really low attrition rate at McCarthy. Um, we're really proud of that. Not to say that, you know, people don't leave, right? Yeah. There's always something, right? It may just be the culture. They're just not a cultural fit for us. Um, but it, it really does help improve our retention. What we struggle with sometimes is, you know, recruiting right out of college, trying to get some project engineers in the door. They don't really grasp the concept of the ESOP right out of college at 22 years old, right? They're like, what? I want I want my base salary in my pocket today, yeah. right? And we're talking about this when you're, you know, when you're 59 and a half, you can, you know, access this money. Um, it doesn't mean a lot to them. So oftentimes we, we kind of joke, like we need to talk to their parents because their parents will understand it, right? They're yeah. going to help them make a really valuable decision based on what we can offer them as far as opportunity because it's not cash in their hand today, right? See, and that's, that's important term. to realize. And, and it's hard because, you know, as a young kid or young student, you don't realize the value. I mean, if, if at 22, you can start putting money in your ESOP, if you start putting money in your 401k, you know, as that exponentially grows, you know, when you're in your 50s, I mean, that's that's a substantial amount of retirement and great benefit, you know. And unfortunately, you know, I wish I think all of us should spend a little bit more time and, you know, in high school and college to understand that finance side, Absolutely. which is what your strength, you know, your strength is. And so I'm sure I know you have a lot of kids, you know, so I'm sure they understand exactly what mom's telling them. Yeah, we, we try to help them along and get them to understand, you know, we had a, um, our oldest, you know, start her first, you know, kind of career job this year. And it was fun to actually help her with, well, how much should I be putting out of my paycheck into my 401k? Or what benefit plan, you know, medical plan should I pick and select? I mean, those are big time adult decisions. And, and it really is complicated. And I agree with you. We don't do a great job uh, in our society of helping, you know, outside of the home, mm -hmm. teach our children some of these, these skills that, you know, are just life, life skills. Yeah, you don't figure out till later, and then which is tough. And so, you know, how getting into the female side of things, which has always been a curiosity to me. And, you know, for you, Chris, I mean, you, you're one of the top industry leaders in our country. I mean, especially at McCarthy, an amazing firm. And so, you know, 
construction has been a male dominated industry. I mean, it just has been. And it's funny because I've had a lot of designers on my podcast and we always speak about the challenges of being a designer and coming into the construction job site. And, you know, unfortunately there's sometimes resistance. And, and so how have you, uh, you know, dealt with that? How have you achieved such success? Uh, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I reflect on it, so construction wasn't my, you know, first industry. I have a public accounting experience um, and then sort of just made my way by happenstance into construction um, and, you know, best industry ever, right? Now I know. Yeah. But so I think I naively went into the situation um, really not realizing how male dominated it was, if that... I mean, it, it sounds like a really blonde moment, and it, and it truly is because, or maybe I just never thought of that, right? Um, the perspective I have is that I'm going to give 110% every single day to whatever I'm doing. And um, regardless um, of maybe the environment around me, I'm going to be me and do my part. Um, and, and not to say that there aren't barriers for women, um, you know, in our field for certain, especially those that are in an operational role, right? I have the benefit of being in more of an office role. I'm still surrounded by uh, predominantly men, but um, so I guess I went into it a little naive, but I think that um, I like to use the term gracefully assertive. Um, I think that um, I found a confidence um, early on that I, I was comfortable with, but that wasn't over the top um, or seen as arrogant. I also can step back and really look at people and understand who they are and where they're coming from, um, you know, and identify someone, oh, that, that person is highly arrogant. I'm going to dial back the way I behave to kind of complement the way they're behaving. Um, or sometimes, you know, there's someone who's maybe more meek or timid, and you got to dial back who you are as well for that. So I think almost being a chameleon in some respects to personalities and then earning trust. Um, and showing that you're willing to do what it takes, roll up my sleeves, I'm not above doing anything. Um, and, you know, if you're going to stereotypically ask me to do something, I'm, I'm probably going to do it, but I might ask you to do it in return at some point too. So, um, and I think that's great business advice. I mean, the reality is I look at it, you know, being a business owner now with my team and there's a lot of things I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm figuring it out as a business owner. I'm figuring out our company as we're growing. And, and I've realized you have to put the right people in line. But even people that are empowered and put in the position to succeed, I have to understand that all my team's different. They're going to communicate differently. They're going to handle situations differently and stress. You know, clients are different. How do I communicate with them? And I think there are observations that I need to make, right, as an owner or just as an employee on those around me. And I think there's just sound advice for anybody. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. Just, exactly. You have, say. Yeah. You just have to understand the nuances of relationships. I mean, essentially we're spending so much time at work. I mean, we have our work family and our personal family, right? And so right. how do you balance that? Right. No. And um, that's, that's exactly where I was headed was, you know, male or female, it's all about relationships and personalities and communication. And I think I went into it not thinking, oh, look at all these men. These are personalities that I need to learn to work with, period, end of story. Um, so yeah, so balancing it all, you know, I like to think that I um, don't live to work, that I live to contribute. And I really think that you know, the contribution you want to make is very individualized. And so for me, I'm choosing to contribute um, not only as a wife and a mother, 
but as a, you know, an employee at McCarthy, some people may just decide to contribute only to their family and that's okay, right? And so I ground myself in contributing in the ways that I want to contribute, but I also ground myself in um, really the perspective, and this may not be popular, but I don't think I can have it all, at least not at any one point in time. I am continually sacrificing in one of those contribution areas always. And that's okay. You're making a metal choice maybe this week to give, you know, 65, 70 hours to your work and you have to, you know, give therefore less to your family. It's just math, right? There's only 24 hours in a day. Um, but maybe the next week you're able to dial back the work and, and, and step up when needed to contribute from the wife or the mom perspective. And so when I reflect back on that overall contribution, that's where I'm grounded in maybe success and a successful integration of it all, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes complete sense. I, I've never heard it said in those terms where you think of buckets, right? So you, you use the term contribution. You're going to where am I contributing my efforts and my time into each of these buckets that I have? And the same thing for me. I mean, you have six kids. I have six kids, uh, you know, and so as a father, as a mother, as a wife, as a husband, you know, and, and you're trying to figure out the balance of work and everything else that, yes, you can only put so much contribution of your time and effort into certain buckets. And so there are times of the week where you have to just manage what's most important that week. And it could be that my high school daughter needs some time or my wife needs some time. And so how do I allocate my time for them and right. balance that. So right. how do you do that? I mean, because for you, what's unique, Chris, is you are, you're traveling, you know, you, you're here in Arizona, but you're traveling throughout the country. You have, you know, your husband, you have your six kids and they're grown, some are married, some are at home. And so you have this complicated life. So how are you managing that work-life balance? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually the way I answer today is a little bit different than 12 months ago with COVID, right? I haven't had to travel. In fact, I'm coming up on like a one-year anniversary of actual work travel, which is wow. just crazy. But I know that that's not for the long haul. So back to the practices I had to instill before. But, you know, it really starts with, you know, Justin, my husband, um, and our relationship and he and I being on the same page with what we both want to contribute to in our lives, right? And we're both type A and we're both driven. And um, that just takes a high amount of, you know, at times compromise and communication um, to really schedule and know what's in front of us for the coming week, the coming month, um, and communicate. And I think that we have learned throughout our marriage to communicate more and more effectively um, as we both have grown in our careers as well. I think that today I reflect back on when the kids were a lot smaller and all that was going on. And I think, oh my gosh, how did we even do <laughs> so that? Like, right. Yeah. I mean, some nights you hit your head on the pillow and you look at each other and you high five because you're like, sweet, we made it through another day. <laughs> like we got everybody where they needed to be food on the table. Right. And, and sometimes that's all you can do, right. Is celebrate the smallest victory, which is you got through that day that had just so many moving parts, um, and dynamics, but we really communicate a lot together. He's super supportive. Um, and, you know, we try to teach our children um, a bit of independence and self-reliance as well, right? Um, you know, our youngest is nine now. There's no reason why he can't be doing for himself, right? I don't need to, you know, hold his hand in every situation. And so teaching them to grow with a little bit more independence um, has really helped, um, especially as obviously they've gotten older, but it's a, it's a juggle. It's, it's never perfect. I'll well, tell you that. I'm sure, it's lying. Helped, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it's helped you as a manager too, because you think about that analogy, you know, same thing for your employees. You need to empower them. You know, there's a point where, you, you know, with my team, they'll come to me and say, Hey Brad, what do I do here? And I'm like, you know, like, you know what to do. And even if you don't, it's okay that you make a mistake, but you're not going to learn unless you go do that. You don't have to ask me. Right. And it's the same thing where, 
at some point they kind of have to figure out, you know, that process and, you know, they're going to make mistakes and that's okay because that's how you learn from them. I mean, I think in my life and my company, the, the best learning experience that I've had are when I've made those mistakes, right? Because I'm not going to make them again. That's right. And they've, they've changed the course of me as an individual and also my company. Yeah. And I think too, communicating, I mentioned a lot communicating with my spouse, but communicating with your children, right? So when I was traveling a lot, you know, I got to tee them up for success too. Hey, mommy's going to be gone Monday through Thursday, right? This week. Oh, you know, you might get a big sigh. You're going to miss this basketball game or this, you know, event. Hey, but next week I'm not traveling at all, right? And so I try to communicate the schedule so that they're not taken off guard or there wasn't, there isn't just some I would hate for them to just have this expectation like, oh, mom's not here again, yeah. <laughs> you know, but that I'm teeing it up with in a way that they, they can plan to, right? Emotionally, mentally, um, mom's not going to be around, right? She's not going to be here to throw, you know, breakfast on the table. I'm going to either step up or dad's going to help out or, and the way dad does it may not be the way mom does yeah. it. And that's okay too. So, um, so I think that also helping the children um, just understand the expectation as well. And I like to say that I'm I'm not working. I'm going to the office. Um, and I don't know that that little, you know, change in words matters, but it matters to me because I don't want to think I'm working, 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 right? I'm contributing, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to the office to do something I'm super passionate about. Um, and, and when I'm there, I have to give 110%. Just like when I'm home, I hopefully am in present and giving 110%. Yeah, which is always tough. It's always tough to, I don't want to say punch out, but where you have as much responsibility as you do, Chris, you know, to be able to check out and leave that at the office is tough because I'm sure there's things that keep you up at night. So what are those things on with your role, with your responsibility that keep you up at night that stress you out with the finance side of McCarthy? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's have I prepared, you know, from like a financial acumen perspective, are our teams set up with the right tools to be successful, right? Um you know, lots of times we're helping navigate, you know, some risky situations, um, whether, and there's always dollars related to all of it, right? And, and so the impact of those dollars, but, you know, it's really, um, you know, are, have we armed our teams and have we trained and developed our teams enough to um, make the right decisions, right? And raise their hand quick enough when they see or smell smoke, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I think that sometimes what might keep me up is just the fact that something, you know, that something's going to walk in the door that we didn't think of or didn't think about ahead of time, or someone's not going to raise their hand soon enough um, to help be preventative. And we try to, you know, build that culture at McCarthy of you're never going to get reprimanded, right, for raising your hand and saying you need help, right? We want, we encourage you to do that. Hey, someone's been down that road before, right? There's probably someone in our organization who's encountered that same issue or problem. Oftentimes, that's swallowing your pride, right? Because we want to we want to succeed, right? We're very much like success-fail-driven industry, right? You have a successful project or you don't, whether it's built or financially or whatever, whatever your measure of that is. And it's hard sometimes to raise your hand and saying, this isn't going down that success path. I need help here. But the ability to see that smoke and and I'll share an experience we had recently that, you know, you mentioned because what's really important, we had a, we have a custom home and our superintendent is managing the construction of that. And, you know, we're following the flow of construction, you know, he, the windows are installed and then you come behind and you get inspection, do the stucco and everything and the exterior facade. Well, the issue is one of the big transom window was back ordered. So what ends up having a stucco company can only finish a portion and it's left. And so I asked the superintendent, okay, what's the protocol? 
right? Have you spoken to the subcontractor? Look, when's the window coming in? And then what's going to happen now with the stucco guy? Because he's pulled off. He's mm-hmm. done the whole house and now there's a small section. So you know what's coming. He's going to say, well, here's a change order. Here's the cost, which right. we haven't accounted for. Are we back charging the window company because they messed up and don't have the transom? And I said, what you need to do is you need to see the smoke, as you mentioned, Chris. You need to identify this problem. And so before this even has the opportunity to become a change order, call the stucco guy and say, look, are you going to come back when you do the, the final coat? Can you do the brown coat? Not charge me because we'll wait to set up scaffold then, you know, and you could go through this process and they may commit and say, no problem. We're not going to charge you. And if you get that commitment, we're good. If they don't say, no, this is why we have to charge you. It's valid. Well, at least then we can be communicative and either eat it or talk to the window person. But that's where you have to be looking at your project and identifying potential smoke, as you mentioned, Chris. That's right. Because otherwise it comes back and you're like, well, here's the change order. Here's 2,500 you owe me. And you're like, well, wait a second. It shouldn't be that much. And now you're fighting over dollars where if you have that call, it may be zero. Right. It's those surprises, right? I talk about those quarterly meetings we do on all of our projects. And it's sometimes daunting to me how three months ago we didn't know something that we now know today, right? Yeah. And <laughs> and most of the time when you peel the onion back, it was known back then too, yeah. right? It was maybe just that uncomfortableness or they weren't quite sure whether they should raise that as a red flag yet um, or, or, or are just confident in their ability and think, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure this out. And so... Um, you know, it's those surprises, right? That, um, you you got to stay away from those surprises. I hate surprises in construction. So, you know, one last question for you, you know, Chris, are you out in the field? Does your team go on the field? I mean, how often is the accounting financial side auditing, you know, the percentage complete or is this mostly done remotely? Yeah, that's a good question. So in my, literally in my current role, I'm not out in the field as much as I used to be. Um, But our financial team, you know, these meetings that I mentioned usually do occur in the office. Sometimes um, there's a six-week sort of interim meeting on a really heavy self-performed job where absolutely the financial staff will go out to the field and meet with our teams. Um, Routinely, you know, our financial teams like to get out and just train on that financial acumen that we mentioned, right? Let's break down the whip. Let's help you understand how every dollar you spend on this project is really driving our profit and revenue recognition. And so the financial team does a lot of work in that regard to help educate. We also have um, just peer group trainings that happen um, monthly, sometimes quarterly with different groups and you know different topics and different discussions. And it's really advantageous because, you know, all the engineers can get together and talk about their jobs and what's going on and get to know each other and bridge relationships. And and then also um, opportunity to mingle and network with leaders. Um, one of the things I was going to mention, too, early on in my career, kind of being that female in a male-dominated industry, I didn't know it at the time. But before I was in construction, there, I found a leader that I wanted to emulate, right? I found someone that I wanted to look up to. And I think subliminally I did. And now when I think back on that in hindsight, I'm like, what I do, I still look to that person, right? Because they were just this strong female example to me of confidence. And a totally different industry. It was an insurance, right? But um, she was just a strong example of what I wanted to be. Um, and looking back, I realized that now more than ever, what an impact that made for me, just observing that. And so... Um, one, I think, tip I wanted to make was that, you know, find someone to emulate, male or female, right? What characteristics of that leader do you want to become? And how do you go about, you know, developing yourself and finding those blind spots within yourself to to meet that? Oh, I love that you share that. I mean, to have a role model and someone to look up to and, and then utilize those characteristics, characteristics to emulate yourself, right, in your position is so advantageous. So, 
Chris, where can our listeners find you? And, and before you tell them where they can find you, you know, what's upcoming and exciting for McCarthy and everything that you're doing? Yeah. So, um, you know, we just finished a, a strategic plan, um, five-year strategic plan. And so we, um, we used to call them initiatives. And now we're saying these are the imperatives, the things that we have to do to continue to have success. Um, and so we're focused on our craft. We talked a little bit about our self-perform. Um, that is growing tremendously. And we really want our craft professionals to feel part of the McCarthy team. Um, we're focused on innovation, um, and we really want to innovate with purpose, uh, meaning that we don't want to just innovate to say we innovate, but we really want to find meaningful ways to bring innovation to our projects. Uh, we're focused on our culture. That's one thing that we are just continuously focused on. It's an ongoing, you know, cultural journey. Um, you, you get worried that you get too big and you're ruining your culture, right? And, and when you're smaller, you're trying to build that culture and find out who you really are. Um, and then another focus we have, and we talked a little bit about, you know, design build um, and that project life cycle. We think that there is numerous ways in which we can continue to improve that whole project experience for all of the individuals or companies involved in a project, right? Anyone you can name that has a, you know, a foot in the game. Um, you definitely want everyone on the project team to have this overwhelmingly successful experience. And so we're focused on that. For me specifically, um, I am in more of a corporate financial role now. Um, and so I'm focused on ways to leverage some of the capital that we have. Um, we've had a lot of success and um, we think that there's some ways to diversify our capital um, for the benefit of our employee owners. So I'm focused on that. And then where you can find me, you know, I'm not a huge social media fan, but I am on LinkedIn, just at Christine Newman and on Instagram, the same. So, Well, that's exciting. It's fun that you've been able to dabble now on the investment side and be strategically investing, you know, at the company. That's fun. In addition to the role that you already have as VP of finance. So again, Chris, can't thank you enough. You've shared some amazing information and just business systems and advice. I mean, for all of us. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So thank you all for tuning into the podcast today. And just as a recap, if you check the show notes, they're just going to have all the links for the topics that we discuss. And also one of our favorite features now is the chapters that go through the conversation. So if there's certain topics you want to revisit or listen to, they're outlined by the time that we discuss those. And again, we can't thank you enough for all of your support. Please make sure and download our podcast, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and review wherever you download your podcast.